1: Hi everyone, I'm Yash, a host for the New Books Network. Today we will talk to Dr. Ruchi Chaturvedi about a new book, Violence of Democracy, Interparty Conflict in South India. The book was published by Duke University Press in 2023. Ruchi Chaturvedi is a Senior Lecturer in Sociology at the University of Cape Town. She's a political and legal anthropologist who works in cultures of democracy, popular politics and political violence in post-colonial democracies. Thank you, Ruchi, for joining me today for the conversation. It's great to have you here.
2: Thanks so much, yes.
1: So, starting with the first question, how did you become interested in the study of political violence? And why did you choose to focus on Kannur and Kerala more specifically?
2: Um, So, I guess like a number of these, you know, projects emerge out of one's own biography, right? And uh, at the risk of giving away my age, I... I, um, I I grew up at a time or came of age at a time when, as you know, the Hindu right uh, was you know quite on the on the rise. Uh, Babri um, uh, you know, fell when I was uh, I remember correctly when I was in high school, and um, and at the same time, one had this kind of a romance of. Uh, socialist and communist movements and I'm a North Indian through and through, born and raised in North India but I think I had this sort of romantic vision of Kerala being a place that was doing some kind of an interesting, uh, you know, in both in disposition, more uh, broad range policies. Uh, We were all sort of enamored of the Kerala experiment. Um, So I sort of went to Kerala with, you know, with that as part of that romance, if you will, but only to sort of uh, on the ground find folks far more, you know, uh, as these things, you know, always the reality is way more complicated. And uh, I'd actually been very drawn to a film by, called *Piravi* uh, by Keshaji. and that was on what is called the Rajan case. And you know, in Kerala, everybody, most people, know about it. Where uh, a young man uh, disappeared in Calicut, uh, reportedly tortured and, and killed by police during the emergency, and Langsal movements had you know had had their own uh, time in Kerala, and the emergency came soon after. So I think those two sort of very com- like different kinds of strands, are an interest in in what has been on communist Kerala. Uh, but then, and also, an interest in questions of violence, which also, you know, had something to do with the people I was studying with uh, when I started my graduate studies, and uh, which drew me to Kerala more to look at the Pirivi case uh, or the or the Rajan, you know, Rajan case, and uh, and then sort of stumbled upon this thing that had been going on in Kanpur for a long time. Uh, which was, uh, you know, intensification of violence between these two groups, and my entry point were lawyers, uh, lawyers who were defending, um, members from the Hindu right who were had also defended police people uh, during the Rajan case, and uh, and then sort of things followed. So, um, so yeah, I had been sort of, you know, looking to study political life. Uh, had a romantic vision of political life in Kerala, but then encountering far more complicated and more senior side of things, ended up getting drawn into those questions. Uh, So yeah, I think that's sort of some kind of a reply.
1: No, that's very interesting because I mean, I recently interviewed Dr. Moyok Chatterjee about his book, and it's interesting how um, he was speaking about his, uh, he works in political violence as well, and he was talking about he went to university at the time of Godra. So that really captivated him, inspired him. You're talking about the fact that Babri happened at a time when you were in high school. And similarly, I work on political violence. And so for me, it's been the 2000 election. That's when I started university and what's followed. So it's interesting how all of our different political contexts, but see almost different generations of political life in India that we've stood in. Yeah, yeah, No.
2: Definitely.
1: Yeah. Now, moving on, um, your project spans across multiple decades of pre- and post-independent India and involved periods of ethnographic fieldwork that took place nearly 20 years ago and also as recent as 2017. As a result, I was curious about how the life of the project, so to say, has evolved over time and what have been some of the major challenges of undertaking such an expansive study?
2: I mean, I find that question really interesting and it sort of speaks uh, to the heart of the many things that propelled or this book in the form and shape that it's taken. Um, I mean, you know, uh, like I earlier said, I grew up in North India. Um, and I'm, you know, I was trained in sociology, social anthropology, and in that sense, uh, Kerala, you know, a study of Kerala is like being a native yet non-native anthropologist, a native of India, but a non-native, uh, of Kerala. Um, Studying the violence itself, like, you know, on the backs of, of 2002 as well. I mean, 2002 had just happened, the program in Gujarat had just happened when I began my work, uh, when I first sort of began really uh, studying this, this, uh, this violence. And, uh, and it's a violence, you know, uh, as a student, like many other people, um, I'd had, I'd been to my own, you know, share of marches against the Hindu right, uh, had my own sort of formation, uh, political and intellectual formation that emerged in opposition to, to, uh, those forms of exclusionary ideologies. And here, but here I was, uh, studying not just the violence of the Hindu right, but also of the left, um, and of the left, which nationally has been set up as, um, uh, as the counterforce, um, as one that will help us uh, transcend and and get past uh, get past uh, what we're facing right now. Um, so in so I had to keep taking these pauses and thinking about what is it that I was doing. Um, that um, that while there was you know a lot of people who were studying the Hindu right and I was you know happy to contribute to that work, I also had to grapple with the fact. That I was studying the violence of the left. And um and then I had to ask myself, you know, I'm like uh immersed in Kerala, but also stepping away from Kerala. Uh and what does that relationship mean to to be, you know, you you grow up with area studies, you go grow, grow up as a South Asianist, like wanting to zone in and immerse yourself in this context, but these these things are not not uh, specific to Kerala or specific to India. Uh, my own context kept changing. And uh, and then you know that was sort of a kind of another pause and it gave me another standpoint as, as I moved to South Africa. And South Africa sort of became a certain kind, I had to sort of take stock again. What does it mean to think about Kerala? What does it mean to think about India? From a place like South Africa, uh, which has its own democracy and its own popular politics and its own xenophobias and its own violence. And each of these things speaks to each other. So uh, the challenge was, I think, yeah, I think the challenge, I'm not sure if I can name like one set of challenges. Um, but the fact of, of uh, the fact that, that study became expansive because of these reasons of uh, these reasons sort of pushed me to pause, take stock, think about what is it that I was doing, what does it mean to study for a native, non-native, and, you know, anthropologist, what does it mean to study not violence of the right and the violence of the left, what does it mean to study it from different locations, uh, from southern African location, from, you know, not just an Indian location, not just a Kerala location. Uh, so I think each of those pauses pushed me to make this make this study. Uh, yeah, I like that word. I mean, expansive is a great word to use. So yeah, I like it. Thanks.
1: Thank you. That's really informative, even if it's a little scary as like a graduate student to think of the, all the directions that my work might go into that I don't foresee right now. Yeah. Uh, now, moving on to the book, a major argument you make is that majoritarianism isn't merely a function of ideological agendas but is foundational to the system of representative democracy. Could you elaborate on this with the audience?
2: So, I think that 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 argument has developed in the last few years. I mean, like, a, you know, something that I must say is that 2014 and 2019, uh, the electoral victories that we've seen of the right, everything that we have been witnessing, especially since 2014, um, have, of course, left a deep mark on, on everyone. And um, and in that light, like you know, it was pushing me to think about uh, about what is it. I mean, you can't just say that the left and right mirrors each other, and you know, the the battle between uh, the Sang and the CPIM and Kerala is not necessarily an ideological battle either. Even though ideology is invoked, I think to some extent uh, as a mode of justification it is and it is not an ideological battle there's there are other layers that have been uh, that have been at play and it's not a new battle i mean the you know the work that i did do in the earlier chapters is to talk about how uh if you look at uh even like the 1940s or the 1950s and 60s when the sung is not necessarily an important presence uh in north kerala uh, you do have politics turning very adversarial, uh, combative. I call it a shift between from agonism to antagonism, from a politics of trying to contain the opposition uh, to then a politics of trying to efface the opposition. And, uh, and then that gets mixed in with, you know, uh, with love and hate and, and, you know, vengeful formation of uh, communities of vengeance. So, you know, all of this was, was. Uh, I mean, again, like I said, this is not a new story at all. Um, and of course, there are particularities that are of North Kerala and particularities of India and South India. Um, but yet again, this is a story that, to my mind, is is uh, widely shared. And what is interesting about North Kerala, I mean, Kannur and this violence is that it's not uh, the people, both on the right and the left, they belong to very similar caste and class communities. So it's not in the first instance an ethnicized conflict or a conflict between uh, Hindus and Muslims or you know Muslims and, and Christians. It's not you know it's not it's not easily thought about in these terms. And yet it resembles ethnicized conflicts, conflicts that have emerged out of communalized identities. So so. In thinking through that and taking pause um, on on that kind of a uh, on that kind of a setting, I found myself increasingly thinking about the political system that is that is make the, you know that is at the heart of what is going on, which is an interparty conflict uh, or two groups seeking both political dominance, electoral dominance, but also seeking to become very popular. Uh, and presences on the on the local at the local levels, and um, in this sense, I've sort of been like you know uh, highly influenced by uh, thinkings about democracy or more critical writings about democracy that come both from of course uh Kumar and Partha Chatterjee, but also actually a Nigerian political scientist called Cloud Aké and he gives us a thing uh, uh a lineage of democracy where he reminds us that actually the kind of democracy that that is now hegemonic and you know the the dominant form in the world is one where uh, you certainly have and i'm using um, you know the formulation that that Chatterjee has in his uh, book i am the people that you certainly can have a democracy which is for the people you certainly can have democracy which is off the people But rarely do we no longer have a democracy which is by the people. So the idea of democracy as a democracy of self-rule by the people has dissipated. Instead, we have a democracy which is, you know, democracy by uh, or rule by the representatives of the people. And the people have the right to choose those people, those, you know, those representatives. And those representatives compete with each other and that competition is what we call democracy so democracy is basically a competition uh, you know has become reduced to uh being competitors in uh in this in this vying for popular and electoral power and in this vying for popular and electoral uh, for electoral po- power this the system then rewards people who uh can produce uh you know if you if you want to sort of become the person on top, or if you want to be the winner in this kind of a system, then producing sameness, producing identities and groups and communities that are ready to vote for you, to give you assured electoral backing, uh, have cohesiveness amongst them themselves. And, uh, you know, are and this cohesion often comes together with adversarial, almost like a politics of enmity against other groups, that becomes a kind of a, uh, the logical outcome again and again. Now, it's not that, of course, this is going to necessarily happen in every situation, but the seeds for it, the very, uh, the very making of it is there in the system itself, which is setting up groups to compete with each other to, uh, and, and become the major force, become the numerically more dominant uh, political formation uh, one that is going to be able to translate uh, its its popular power into greater electoral power, and we see that in in Sri Lanka, we see that in Kenya, we see that even in in uh, you know democracies of the West, uh, and that's why I sort of I make this equation between majoritarianism as something which is you know inherent to democracies and not necessarily extraneous.
1: Yeah, thank you. That really helps make sense of a lot of what. The argument comes later in the book. Um, the next question, uh, in terms of the concept of pastoral power that you borrowed from Foucault, it forms an important aspect of your argument in the book. Could you explain the concept and discuss how you employ it in the book?
2: Um, so, you know, pastoral power, I mean, yes, um, it it indeed sort of forms a thread through several chapters um it emerges in the first few chapters and then uh and then you know as i talk both about early early politics or early political leaders of uh of north kerala in the 40s and 50s as i talk about younger men who become uh who become local level political leaders of the cpm and then i talk about pastoral care quite a lot when i discuss uh when i discuss the hindu right as well um pastoral care i mean i'm not going to necessarily like go to Foucault right now and i'm going to sort of try to uh unpack how i describe it uh or how i mobilize Foucault. but then uh an important person or the person whose work actually directed me to thinking about pastoral power uh in in kerala context is jadevika's work and uh there's an early article of hers where she's describing the ways in which uh, ways in which ideas of care and uh, well-being were mobilized by upper caste men uh part of the part of the communist and socialist uh socialist blocs in kerala and through that uh you know they themselves set themselves up as as ideal political leaders uh, for a downtrodden, downtrodden community. And I only found myself like scratching the surface a little bit uh, to, to find that to be very much the case. Um, so I write about uh, A.K. Gopalan, you know, preeminent uh, CPI and CPIM leader, uh, and then a more uh a leader who is of the socialist, of the Praja Socialist Party, PR Kurup. Uh, who is known more locally in, in Kerala. And in both instances, I talk about the ways in which they mobilize the ideas of looking after the downtrodden, looking, you know, uh, taking care of, of um, men and women from other communities, you know, small acts of care, helping them build their, the shed of their house, the roads, um, also commensality, like, you know, breaking taboos. To emerge and and position themselves as men who would who can lead the community, and here the term social worker and political worker at some point you know, you know they start getting imbricated or becoming uh, becoming tied to each other. Part um, of the strategy again, like you know, to invoke him describes some of these acts as part of his writings on on political society as well and talks about the ways in which these everyday acts of care become modes of mediating between the desire to obtain state power and and uh, populations uh, on the ground and and we know that uh, governmentality and biopolitics are, are closely uh, are closely linked to this. Um, and then I sort of take up this, uh, this notion of pastoral care, um, thinking about more local, I you know more um, workers down da- down the hierarchy uh, of the party, which is the CPI, uh, CBIM, uh, as well as the RSS, BJP cadres, and each of them also carrying on these small acts of, of looking after you know people in their neighbourhood, uh, shepherding, uh, almost you know to use that for term, but for us for something in return. And then there was always a reciprocity here, the idea that you would get uh, that popular status, the idea that you would get uh, support you know, and then that might also translate into electoral support. That's very much a part of the ethos that you that you see. Something that I discuss also is how this idea of pastoral care is built into the notion like a, the, the forms of political masculinity that become hegemonic in Kerala. So uh, much as the protester and the angry righteous, uh, you know, comrade, uh, is one form of uh, hegemonic political masculinity that you see emerging. The the one who's going to also take care of the community and be that kind of big brother figure, um, is is another kind of uh, you know form of political masculinity that you see emerging that mobilizes uh, pastoral care. And it has a long, long history that it, I tried to plot, at least from the 1930s, 40s onwards.
1: Thank you. And that I think that really sets us up for the next question, which is more specifically about chapter three, which I found to be one of the more fascinating chapters, which is titled Care, Connectedness and Violence in Hindu Right Communities. I found the contradictory juxtaposition of care and violence amongst Hindu nationalist mobilization really intriguing. Could you discuss some of the ways in which care facilitates the violence of the Hindu right and their mobilization?
2: Um, yeah, so care, um, you know, care. Is, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it's deeply linked to the to what I just said about uh, about pastoral power, and um, this you know this work has been done for some time. Uh, where we know that the sang has seva kin, so that we know that uh, during the Gujarat earthquake, you know they mobilized to look after people. Even if you go back as far as the partition, you know the work in the relief camps and so on. So we know that that kind of uh, work of uh, doing care is uh, is very pivotal uh, for sang mobilization. And um, and then of course, you know, like just as I was describing earlier, the it's it's at this more o- organized levels, but it is you know people running of ambulances, blood donation camps, uh, having tutorial groups for young kids who are coming from more deprived backgrounds, you know all of these are you know necessarily necessarily there. Um, and for the Sangha, as we know, like you know creation of what uh, of a cohesive community um and having those close kind of familial ties amongst their supporters is very 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 important um, and you see that consistently um you know in in spaces where uh, where the Sank operates what's what was most uh striking for me was the relationship between like you just said between care and, and violence and um, and the way that I sort of began thinking about it, I think for me the care question came first through violence uh, or through encounters with people who had experienced violence or you know suffered violence, and then those who had enacted violence. Um, so with with people who had experienced violence, uh, again, this is you know it's not uh, this is something we might you know fairly familiar with. That the people who have experienced violence find these these kinds of communities of care that the sang builds up, uh, these you know almost family like ties that the Sun builds up become like very supportive, uh, very important, uh, very important reference points. But then it becomes something else that the communities that that the Sun builds up are also communities where people who have enacted the violence are able to uh are able to almost uh disavow or you know dissolve their guilt into this larger community they themselves don't have to be held responsible for the violence it's almost like nobody you know the community helps them to almost forget the guilt that they that they inhabit uh, or that that they that that is floating through them so the kind of people that I was studying and encountering were not necessarily your, you know.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today that's shopify.com system
2: ultimately like you know some kind of uh, misanthropes who had no sense of or who had no cognizance of their own violence and the violence that they had enacted they had they had quite a profound cognizance of their own violence and the violence that they had enacted but being in that community of people who were holding them together, being in that community of people who they felt were just like them and uh who, you know, who helped them almost like um unacknowledge their their violence, you know, almost forget about their violence, almost disavow their violence. So um so that's where I mean I think the relationship between care and violence um is quite a strong one. I mean, I think maybe I should just... Uh, it might to make more sense to if I read something from, from the text and, uh, and that can help. unpack what I'm saying here. Um, so, okay, let me just um, read a short paragraph. Uh, and this is from the chapter that you evoked. Um, and here they say, in the competitive game that is representative democracy, violence has been committed in order to equalize cause and gain the upper hand, as well as to avenge one's own. Hindu right-wing communities brought together through the workings of pastoral power have mitigated individual suffering, pain and the weight of culpability that have come in the wake of this violence. So far, while the sunk service activities and pastoral power have not generated enough backing for the RSS-PJP, To emerge as winners in elections in Kanur, they have drawn in recruits, animated and moulded their inner lives and produces grounds for connection, communion and forms of sociality in which the singular I can be dissipated in the collective we. An attack on one thus becomes an attack on all and the pain and burden of one became the pain and burden of all within this community. This included the individuating pain and burden of both suffering and enacting violence. Um, so yeah, that that's the sort of um so I think like care is something that almost sort of produces violence or creates the con- you know, and these kind of cohesive communities that position themselves against an against an adversity or that enemy is something where that creates the conditions for violence, but it, care is also something that uh, the violence in turn also lets, you know, in turn also produces greater cohesion uh, amongst these caring communities. Uh, yeah, in, in, in this context.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And for me, again, it was particularly fascinating also because a lot of the political science literature that I go through tends to like insufficiently focus on the affective forces and tends to focus more on the material and how that links to electoral and voter preferences, particularly when it comes to the Hindu, right? So I think it was really helpful to have these affective understandings. But secondly, what you just said about is not just about the victims of violence. It was also about those who enact violence and how does care produce the conditions under which their experiences of enacting violence almost get blurred into acts of care. And how that's particularly relevant, I think, for the current period as well, where we're seeing this almost explosion of violence in the name of Hindutva and Hindu right, especially. And the passage you quoted again, like, perfectly uh, preempts the other question that I had, because you reflect that tension there between achieving or not achieving electoral dominance, but still having this community. Because when it comes to the Hindu rights mobilization activities in Kerala, A common point brought up is the relative lack of success for the BJP in terms of elections. And I was reading a recent paper in Modern Asian Studies, which also points to this consolidation of Hindu nationalist sentiments among civil society groups in the state as part of the Hindu rights long game in the state as such. Given your book has an expansive temporal scope that we discussed earlier, have you observed shifting incentives or tactics among the Hindu right in Kerala? And how do you view a potential distinction between electoral and non-electoral mobilization activities of the Hindu right?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know, Eja the wrote this piece uh, a few years, just a few years before he passed, um, where uh, I mean, it's it's not new stuff, but the way he framed it was was very helpful, um, which is that. The Hindu rights uh, has been, you know, it, it seeks to to uh, change the social subjectivity of people of uh, Indian citizens uh, in order to uh, in order to become in order to obtain a permanent political majority, and um, and I think that work as we all know. Uh, of changing the social subjectivity has been happening for an incredibly long time, um, and and the machine is is you know well works quite well or you know sadly works quite well at least in several parts of the country seems to be working quite well. Um, I would say that you know yes, I think in Kerala too um, that machinery has been working quite well. Um, and I think uh, you know we all know about the Samrimala moment. I think one of the most sort of scary elements of this is uh, is the ways in which they're able to mobilize Islamophobia uh, and and or well, cultivate Islamophobia or make it almost a kind of a general commonsensical uh, way of thinking about other communities. And um, and I think that is something that uh, that is happening uh, not just that Islamophobia is creeping in not just uh, amongst uh, members of uh, you know people who are defined or described as Hindus, but uh, but also the Christian community uh, as well as people you know self-professed uh, members of the left. Um, so, so that, I mean, and that cultivation of Islamophobia um, is, is to, you know, to me feels like uh, one of the most dark uh, and, and the most worrying things, especially when, and especially if minority groups, uh, you know, if you have uh, Kerala's Christians also starting to uh, feel, you know, be starting to become sympathetic. I don't know, I'm, I can't say, how they're responding to what has happened in Manipur most recently, uh, and if that is a worrying uh, moment for them. But until you know, just uh, a few weeks ago, I mean, uh, the sense that I was getting um, from conversations with people, uh, yeah, is 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 around around that kind of Islamophobia finding itself quite strongly in Christian community. But also, I mean, I'm speaking more anecdotally that though there are research articles. uh, work there as well uh, and again speaking anecdotally as well uh, but again you know but while having while noting that there's also work that's coming out uh and some of which that I cite in the book uh on the ways in which even amongst the left uh sympathies not necessarily voting but but sharing uh that uh that dread of the muslim as is uh it's quite, yeah, it's pretty pervasive. So I would sort of say that indeed, like, you know, the social subjectivities can be transformed in so many different kinds of ways. And uh, one, of the, one of the frightening things about the Hindu right is, is, is the ways in which it's, it manages to shift and change um, its machinery and uh, things that it appeals to based on the particular contexts as well. So I don't necessarily see a crazy jingoistic nationalism uh, emerging in Kerala or, you know, at least in Mount and My reading quite the same way, but, uh, but more fissures, um, and where that might, how that might translate, it might or might, I don't, yeah, translate into electoral gain. Is, is, yeah, I'm not not entirely certain if that's going to happen or ju- happen just yet.
1: Yeah, and that focus on social subjectivities is so relevant, especially because when we think of Hindu right and a lot of like analysis is tends to be that if we're able to vote them out, somehow we're able to get rid of their influence. Whereas as you're discussing social subjectivities are far more pervasive than just electoral games and electoral agendas at a time when institutions, bureaucrats and all like these subjectivities have been framed in these ways. Then it's important to think of their mobilization beyond just elections in these forms mm-hmm. of subjectivities. Yeah. Not great now moving on to what's part two of the book in chapter four titled law subterfuge you argue that the courts have and quoting you here depoliticized political violence unquote in India could you discuss some of the ways this has taken place in the case of inter-party conflict in Kerala
2: um so again you know the 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 argument about depoliticization um there are two chapters where I discuss uh the trials that, uh, CBIM and artists as BJB workers have gone into and one chapter and both chapters, um, are perhaps weighed more heavily in contextualizing and, uh, thinking with a broad expanse, uh, of what law means in the, rela- in relationship to political violence. Um, and not, and not just sort of focused in on, on the actual, uh, trials that, that, um, uh, that CPIM and RSS BJP workers have gone through. So, depoliticization of political violence is actually something that Mahmoud Mamdani has talked about quite a lot in the African context. And, um, and of course, the context that he is describing is, is, uh, you know, the scales of violence that he is describing have been much bigger, uh, whether that be uh, Rwanda or that be actually apartheid South Africa. And um, and it's you know I'm and I'm I am and i i can not entirely remember at what point the politicization came to my mind at what point I was reading his work and, and so on, but uh, but in the book I I do draw on him uh, to talk about and I also draw on um, I also draw on Kikana Biran. And uh, Balagopal to think about ways in which political violence in India has been criminalized. Um, and it's been's been, it's been and, and with that criminalization comes what I you know really talked about in, in the last chapter is individualization uh, of political violence. So the ways in which, I mean I, I think through what I call like uh, paradigms of responsibility, and the ways in which responsibility is understood in the criminal justice system. And uh, I try to historicize the ways in which the criminal justice system has come to understand responsibility for violence and discuss the ways in which, say, something like the Indian Penal Code uh, really holds up what is called a capacity-based understanding of responsibilities, you know, your intention to commit an act the micro-sequences through which an act is committed, uh, whether is somebody actually commits an act or not, and so on. And in that, the context is completely effaced. So the reasons why, um, why somebody commits an act that they do are largely become become obfuscated, largely become obscure. They're not the lens through which uh, violence is being understood. and uh, And... You know, so this kind, so, so that becomes a moment where, especially where you're talking about political violence and if you individuate it and you completely obscure uh, the context from which it's coming, uh, the reasons why it's emerging, um, you know, that's that's the, that's the first sort of act of, of political uh, depoliticization that you're doing. Uh, so for Mamdani, that depoliticization goes hand in hand with an inability... I mean, he says, like you know, violence becomes its own explanation, and all we do is like just feel like you know that instant of violence, that act, that individuated act of violence is what we, we obsess with, or we obsess with particular people uh, who we see as as triggers or as uh, as uh, as embodiments or, or or as as people who are the minds behind the violence, if not the actual person who pulls the trigger. And in that, the, the, as you as you are facing the context. You are you are creating the conditions for this violence to keep reproducing itself because you're not addressing the context, uh, and that's where he says like you know political justice is not going to happen if you uh, if you're not or real transformative justice is not going to happen uh, if you are uh, obsessed if you if it's if political violence is criminalized uh, in these forms and shapes. Um, What we see happening in India, and I mean, not just in India, but in multiple parts of the world, uh, where you have, uh, where the criminal justice system, on the one hand, really upholds what it calls the character-based, sorry, the the capacity-based understanding of responsibility, is that side by side, we also know that, for instance, you know, Racial profiling is, happens in the U.S., racial profiling happens in South Africa, racial profiling happens in, you know, and, and any amount of profiling happens in India with respects to Dalits and Muslims and Adivasis. And what I try to do is plot the genealogy of what is called the character-based, uh, you know, mode of assigning responsibility and say that actually character and capacity-based modes of, uh, are working together. And what you see now in uh, these exceptional laws like UAPA, or, you know, in the past, like TADA, is actually, uh, you know, a form of character-based, you know, imputing you as an anti-national or thinking that you're a Muslim or a Talit and hence you're that much more suspect. Uh, or if you're a, you know, lefty or a Maoist, you're that much more suspect. Uh, imputing that on you, but at the same time, upholding uh, capacity-based, trying you according to you know, all the procedures of, of rules of law, uh, and upholding that individuated uh, capacity-based. And I, and I still talk about this duality, which is letting the criminal justice system um, not, just, uh, not just sustain the violence, but perhaps even reproduce it. Yeah
1: and staying with this part of the book uh, a rather interesting concept that you bring up and i think that's where the argument goes beyond kerala as well is about uh, discussing the role of the law more generally you talk about a jurisprudence of suspicion could you discuss the concept and how that's applied in the chapter in the book
2: sure. so the jurisprudence of suspicion is upendra baxi's uh, term if i you know have plotted my genealogy of that term correctly And it comes up in Ujwal Singh's work as well. And then I sort of borrow it from them. Um, They're both sort of talking about it in relationship to what I was just saying in terms of exceptional laws uh, where, uh, you know, the evidentiary uh, requirements are much less and uh, where it is, you know, where preemptive, uh, preventive detention and those kind of things uh, come up, I mean, The worst, you know, one of the worst case scenarios being the UAPA right now, but uh, but the way that I, uh, like I was saying earlier, and maybe I'll I'll, uh, read out some sections that part of the book as well, is that I was I've been trying to think about this suspicious based suspicion based uh, or just jurisprudence of suspicion as having this longer lineage, which you know, of course, uh, I think Bhavani Raman. And historian is now doing, she's now doing work, which will take us to the early colonial decades to think about, you know, preventive detention coming up and uh, to think about the lineage of exceptional laws and this jurisprudence of suspicion. But uh, in my work, I draw on secondary sources to talk about something like the Criminal Tribes Act. Uh, and talk about the ways in which on the one hand you had the Indian Penal Code emerging as, you know, this rationalized mode of judging, determining guilt based on, you know, objective measures. And this is not peculiar to India. This is also happening in, 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 in Imperial Britain uh, and elsewhere. And at the same time, you have something like the Criminal Tribe Act also emerging, uh, and the acts and so forth, which uh, which judge people entirely on their on ascriptive qualities, uh, on their ascribed characters. Um, so I talk about how these two have actually been uh, going hand in hand, and uh, this this kind of a duality, which is very much part of the Indian democratic system, and very much part of most dem- democracies and and uh, criminal justice systems. And one being masking the other, uh, so we have we have this deep belief in rule of law, but at the same time, uh, the one is you know one is propping up the other. So sure enough, like people are being charged under UAPA, and I, and I would say that that's a character you know there's a character based thing that's going on. We know how weak the evidence is. We know that these are, these people are being charged because they are part of the dissenting communities. Uh, but at the same time when they go to court, they're gonna have to uh, try to absolve themselves on the basis of evidentiary stuff. Uh, they're being charged as individuals. So there's a there's a kind of a duality here that is, is is a really difficult one to, it's kind of an impasse that we find ourselves in. Um, yeah, maybe I can read that part of the show. okay. okay. Uh, let's see. Okay. okay. The Indian Penal Code stresses individual cognition and volition as key variables of adjudicating crime rationally and scientifically. Laws such as the Criminal Tribe Act and by bad livelihood provisions of the CRPC projected crimin- criminality onto entire collectives. The IPC excised context of violent actions from view as it stressed individualized assessments of the guilty mind on the basis of will and knowledge. It thus obviated the possibility of political and transformational justice in instances of individual and group violence. In the meantime, laws revolving around Thagi and so-called criminal tribes made social antecedents the rationale for repressive but legalized subjection of vast communities of people for decades to come. These laws helped lay the ground for legalized injustices of post-colonial democratic governments which have targeted minorities and other dissenting marginalised groups. Their history offers a critical insight that the jurisprudence of suspicion underlying character-based assessments has gone hand-in-hand with individualised responsibility-capacity-based provisions of the IPC. Character-based assessments have led to the containment and criminalization of groups and dominant sections of the polity, find threatening. In the meantime, capacity-based paradigms promise objective criminal justice. They are cogs of the same wheel that granted legitimacy to the colonial state while securing its sovereignty. They perform a comparable role in post-colonial democratic times. Um, so yeah, that's sort of like the the argument that I'm making about you know pushing expanding jurisprudence of suspicion, if you will, um, to both talk about the past and the current moment.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, And it's especially relevant again, when we think of how in the current moment is almost as if even this is insufficient for them. So if we look at all these instances of bulldozers being used against innocent Muslims or Muslims who are even under some slight suspicion of any activity without relegating all aspects of Rule of law under the carpet and just going ahead and raising homes of Muslims for no reason, apart from again, for those descriptive characteristics of just being Muslim. And that's what's particularly tragic, as if, like, even these instances and these uh, infrastructures are not enough for them, and they're always looking to make it worse in some ways. Uh, Having said that, yeah.
2: Now, I was just going to add, but the interesting thing with that is that we know that they're being targeted because they're Muslims. But at the same time, to get redress for them, that would, you know, it would end up becoming this, where it's your such and such bylaw, did you break that bylaw, such and such regulation. So there's a weird sort of uh, coming together of the rational bureaucratic with the deeply prejudicial. And I I think what I'm sort of trying to say is that um, the claim to rational bureaucratic and the claim to rule of law and having the rule of law helps, uh, you know, masks that prejudicial or, you know, sustains it and perpetuates it, uh, that that prejudicial violence from carrying on.
1: Yeah, I know it's a, what's also relevant to hark back to something we discussed earlier, how this is not incidental, this is in some ways foundational to the very idea of democracy and representative democracy, which is one of the more important insights from your work. Now, in terms of the last question, I wanted to go back to the introduction wherein, the closing sentence of your introduction reads: "We may regard this book as a means of understanding a shared, con- a shared contemporary political condition." In that light, what are some of the insights do you think from the case of Kanur in Kerala that are instructive for scholars of democratization and political violence like myself? Um,
2: so, like I said, you know, like this book was being written from multiple standpoints and from multiple locations um and in some senses it's you know it's um a book where where i talk i mean i I grapple with i work through uh, through the details of violence that have happened in north kerala over several decades and at the same time i know i i call it an exceptional normal case um there are many exceptionalities to it which i won't go into right now but I call it exceptional normal because I say it's it's like that thing that stands out, but it actually is reflecting something that is widely pervasive and it's it's seen in multiple parts of the world and it's and it's normal to uh to modern democratic political life. Uh so I think that the takeaways for me, for people working on democracy, on political violence elsewhere is um, yeah, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't do a work of like you know thinking of them as one, two, three. But now that you sort of posed this question like this, I was thinking I should have like tried to say one, two, three. But but let me try anyway. Um, one to sort of not think of what we're facing right now, uh, whether that be in India or whether that be in the form of a Modi, uh, or you know whether that be in the form of a Bolsonaro uh like you know extreme right wing populisms uh there or you know if you if you even think of uh, France and and the anti anti immigrant sentiment to not sort of think of that as something that's extraneous that this is just a question of bad leaders or bad ideologies um and if only that those bad that bad leadership and those bad ideologies could be fixed uh you know Things would be better, but to think uh, to think through the very political systems that we all that we all share that we all now have, and um, and whether that be France, <laughs> whether that be Turkey, whether that be Brazil, or whether that be India, um, so I think that's sort of one of the main like one of the big important points. Of course, a lot has been written about nationalisms, um, but uh, but nationalisms have themselves. Uh, the nation state th- th- themselves have sort of um, emerged in the 20th century within uh, within the within within the desire for or the aspiration to the actual institution of what we call uh, representative democracy. And in that light, to also keep reminding of our- ourselves of the fact that um, that representative democracy is is not the only form that has you know existed historically there are multiple sort of iterations of it that his democracy itself has had has a long and complicated history and uh and rule by representatives perhaps like has that capacity uh, and and where again um you know a a little relatively little known political theorist like chowd akis me has been really helpful and perhaps you know for folks in in working on South Asia and elsewhere might also be really helpful. Because he just also does this very important that you're thinking through the ways in which uh, the comings of the market, um, liberal, you know, liberalized economies and liberal democracy uh, have, all, have all just set us up for, uh, have all almost sort of set us up for becoming these, these compete, competing units. Yes. Uh, and these competing units, whether the, that be for uh, economic power or that be for, for state power. And when you have these units competing, and, when, and that's the only way to translate uh, collective aspirations uh, into something more realizable, uh, you might be in for uh, something really god-awful as majoritarianism. Um, and again, like you know, to sort of go... Because you you've got a you know you've got a competing political system where as like I was saying earlier uh, the easiest way to get votes as we know is is to appeal to you know ideas of blood and and indigeneity and paternity and where you come from and you know sustain a politics of enmity and that's repeated itself again and again all over the world so you know you've got that going and and that itself is written on what we call you know the majority principle. Uh, and my you know, Gandhi says this, Ambedkar says it that you you have uh you democracy says that they can they want to protect minorities, but they are not actually set up for that. Uh you have to sort of think very hard um in complicated ways to see how this how democracies can be how the majoritarianism which is inbuilt into democracies can be undone. And that warning, you know, we've been getting for a really long time. So, um, so yeah, I don't know if I did a very good job of of uh, concluding those three lessons, but that's sort of where
1: I would go. Maybe it was... No, thank you. That's, yeah, that's really instructive. And on the relatively somber note, we can end the conversation. Thank you, Ruchi, so much for taking out the time and speaking to us about your work.
2: Thanks so much, Yash. I mean, this was really great. Thank you. <laughs>